There's a relationship between grief and transcendence that may not be immediately recognizable, but it's one often expressed within art and in particular children's literature. Whether it's Lewis's wardrobe to Narnia, Dorothy's house transported by cyclone to Oz, or a bridge to Terabithia built across a chasm of loss. Grief has a way of transporting us to a fantastical world of imagination where we can more easily grapple with the difficulties of loss and even find closure to the trauma that sent us looking for relief. Earlier this year, I had the honor of sitting down with award-winning author Katherine Patterson at the Hope Words Writers Conference. Katherine Patterson is the author of more than 40 books, including 18 novels for children and young people. She has twice won the Newbery Medal for Bridge to Terabithia in 1978 and Jacob Have I Loved in 1981. In our conversation, Catherine shares with me some of the deeper motivations behind her writing and why she feels it is important to create a safe space through art and literature for young adults to work through difficult emotions and experiences. As we enter the final episodes of our conversations on art and the urge for transcendence, I found this discussion to be an appropriate catalyst for us to consider how the arts can facilitate our own journeys beyond pain and the trauma of loss into a renewed world of hope and learning to dream again. Thanks so much for listening. This is my conversation with award-winning author, Katherine Patterson. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. It's a real honor to be able to sit and talk with you. Well, thank you, Stephen, for inviting me to be a part of this. Absolutely. You know, and it just seems appropriate. We're sitting here together in Bluefield, West Virginia. We're both going to be a part of this Hope Words Writers Conference this weekend. And we're in the library, actually in what seems to be the children's book, <laughs> section of exactly. the library. I noticed that as soon as I came here. Yeah, so it My seems like the, place. exactly. So it seems like the appropriate place for the conversation. But, um, you know, I'd love to talk with you not only about your creative process and your book writing, but also about some of your background. And you've got quite a legacy of children's book writing. And we were talking before the show just about even some acting that's in your background. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that. So. Oh you're an artist through and through. <laughs> well, let's start here. Talk to me a little about your own childhood and how that impacted you as a children's book writer. If I'm correct, I believe you were born in China. I was born in China. And, and spent some time uh, there as well as several other places that you've lived across the decades, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I was, I was born in China because my parents were missionaries and we were evacuated twice from China. Uh, once in 37 when the war between China and Japan began. And then we went back after a year. And then when it, it seemed to everyone over there that it wouldn't be long before the United States was involved in, in this world war, uh, we were uh, ordered out of China again. And uh, so America was not my native land. Yeah. And I was an alien. and. and and a refugee, and wow. not as a child welcomed in among my peers. 
Yeah. And uh, so I think, you know, when you're an outsider, uh, of course, what you want most is to become an insider, but that's not allowed by the (laughs) in-group, of course. Right. Uh, But you do a lot of observing, and I think that's very helpful in your in becoming a writer. Yes. Well, when did you discover that you were going to be a writer or that writing was a <laughs> well, passion of yours? No, I didn't discover I was going to be a writer. I had a professor in seminary who stopped me after I'd written an exam and said, have you ever thought of being a writer? Well, I, I have been a reader since I was three years old. I love to read. And I know what good writing is. And when she asked me that question, I was absolutely stunned. I, <laughs> I said, uh, I just wouldn't want to add another mediocre writer to the world. Mm-hmm. And she said, maybe that's what God is calling you to be. And I didn't become a writer because I thought God had plenty of mediocre writers. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might be right there. <laughs> so I, I went to Japan as a missionary. Uh, Instead, and uh, she never gave up because when I came back from Japan, uh, she well, she had already arranged for me to do graduate work in New York, and, and then she uh, enlisted me in a curriculum writing project for the church, and that started me because by the time that was published, we had three children. I was married <laughs> in the meantime and had three children. And the fourth was, uh, we adopted two of them. So we were waiting for our fourth child. And, and uh, so I thought, well, I'm not going to go back to teaching or I think I'll just be a writer. And it took me seven years wow. <laughs> of trying <Yes. laughs> before my first novel was published. Yeah, And that was just a stroke of uh, either luck or providence, whichever way you want to look at it, because it was I'd written about Japan because I love Japan, and uh, it was set in 12th century Japan, and I didn't know that you couldn't sell a, a book for teenagers about life in Japan in the 12th century. Wow. And it just happened that a young woman who read the slush pile books, they read them in those days, took it to the senior editor who had just come back from a trip to Japan, loved Japan, and that's how I got started. Wow, so and it so seems a little providential there I as well. All the way, all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned the experience of being an outsider and, and you know, being American, but born in China, living in a, in a different culture. How did that impact you as a writer? <laughs> well, the story that, uh, I have often told and has been told about me was um, the first time I was in uh, the States. Uh, We lived in Richmond, Virginia, and I started first grade in Richmond, Virginia. And I came back home on Valentine's Day, and I didn't have any Valentine's. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think it was meanness. I think they just said I was invisible. Mm. And uh, my brother and sister, older brother and sister, came back with Valentine. So I was 
very ashamed. Mm. You know, it was a character flaw that I had no Valentines. And my mother, oh, <laughs> her heart was broken. Her little six-year-old coming back with no Valentine. Well, I, I wasn't heartbroken. I was just more embarrassed and puzzled by the whole thing because I'd never done Valentine's Day before. And uh, one time my mother said, years later, why don't you write? a story about the day you didn't get any Valentines. I said, Mother, all my books are about the day I didn't get any Valentines. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> now, what is the title of that first book? Uh, the Sign of the Chrysanthemum. Yes, okay. Uh, I'd be curious to know what compelled you to begin writing for children. Well, I didn't know what our, you know, when I started writing, uh, I did the book that I wrote for the Presbyterian Church was for fifth and sixth graders, but I didn't know that I was supposed to write for children. I had been asked to write that, so I did it. And I tried. Uh, I did write one short story that was published by a small Roman Catholic magazine, and the next month the magazine died. And then, during the seven years between books, I. I wrote a, a poem, and it was bought for $10, which is big money for poetry, um, by a small Roman Catholic magazine that died before it published my poem. So when Thomas Y. Crowell said they wanted to publish my first novel, I said, do I have to warn them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, should you tell them? This is what happened to my last publisher. <laughs> You once said, and this is a quote that I found of yours. Oh yeah, I'm going to ask you to comment on it. But you said once that reading can be a road to freedom mm -hmm. or a key to a secret garden, mm -hmm. which if tended will transform all of life. Yes. This idea of a secret garden seems to have parallels with the magical world of Terabithia. What would you say is this secret garden that you hope your readers will gain access to? Well, uh since more people ask me about Secret Garden than ask me about Terabithia than they do Secret Garden, they, children often say, did you have a Terabithia when you were young? Uh, and every, we moved many times when I was young, but I would always find some place, either in the bottom of the backyard was one of my places, or the spring house on my grandmother's farm, or. You know, there was some place where I could go and be alone. I didn't have a Jess or, or Leslie in my life. I, had, I didn't have many friends at all. And, uh, but a place where I could go and imagine. And I sort of think if you have a, you almost need to have a secret garden of some sort as a child in order to have a secret garden within yourself. Mm -hmm. as you grow older, and um, a place inside yourself where you go and are really yourself. Yes. Wow, that's beautiful. And, and you know, for those of us who are believers, that's where we meet God, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of faith, that seems like that's been uh, a foundational part of your life for most of your life. Um, is that something that has been 
a consistent presence with you throughout all of life? Did you come and go from the faith or how, how has that impacted well, your life? Yes, pretty much. I, 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 you know, of course, my, my childhood home was very much a place of faith where, you know, chief reading was either the King James Bible or Urgemeyer's uh, uh, Bible stories. And uh, so, you know, I, it was a childlike faith. It still is in many ways, of course. <laughs> yes. But um, I, I had a, a hard time as a young teenager. Uh, as a, I think, well, I was—I guess I was probably 15 or 16 mm -hmm. when I, the world seemed to be a terrible place. And where was God? And and if God was good, then why was the world a terrible place? Yeah. And I, there was an older woman. Uh, uh, I was away from my family at the time, but uh, the older woman who was sort of the dorm mother at the place where I was working, and she introduced me to C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. and that was very helpful to me. That's uh, well, you know, I go back to Lewis from time to time uh, because uh, that, that sort of brought me to a different. A deeper level, I think, of faith at this time. Yeah. Would you consider C.S. Lewis one of your inspirations or one of your influences? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of us, I think, that's true. Yes. Who would who would be some other inspirations that yeah. you've carried with you through the years? Yeah. Well, there's always the Bible. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so funny because uh, I live in... Um, retirement community. I call it old folks' home because we're all old and it's our home. But my children hate me to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, really quite a lovely place to live. And we were four of us at the table once, and and uh, people are very literate there. So they were talking about their favorite authors. And, and uh, so they said, well, Catherine, you read a lot. Who's your favorite author? And I said, uh, the Apostle Paul. And I said, <laughs> what? <laughs> that misogynist. All right. <laughs> That's uh, funny. But you know, uh, he had a great influence on my life. Yes. And uh, 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 I love Flannery O'Connor. Oh yeah. Uh, I love uh, Tolstoy. <laughs> uh -huh. I'm, I'm a little embarrassed that I like Tolstoy better than Dostoevsky because if you're really intellectual, you should like him better. But <laughs> I, I find him tough going. <laughs> uh -huh. Oh yeah, yeah. I I love Tolstoy as well. Yeah. <laughs> Dostoevsky's books are too thick; they're intimidating to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they really are uh -huh. awfully tough going. And, yes. And at least Tolstoy has some. Some lightness <laughs> in uh -huh. his books. Yes. <laughs> well, one question that I was really curious to ask you about, there's a complexity in your children's literature, you know, because your writing showcases the full human experience. You know, it showcases the emotional spectrum through stories of love, friendship, as well as death and grief. And in many ways, uh, Bridge to Terabithia teaches children the various stages of grief, you know, through uh, the character Jess's response to Leslie's death. There's denial, guilt, anger, loneliness, reconstruction, and and finally acceptance. No. Why is it important to expose children to what some might say is mature content? Why do you think that's important? Uh, I think 
very often in children's books you're having a rehearsal. It's a safe place to weep for Leslie. And it's a book, you know? Someday you're going to weep. And I, I was just telling Nathan in the car, uh, I got a letter from a young man uh, some years ago, and he said that uh, he and he had a friend uh, that they'd grown up, they'd done everything together, but when they got to college, they went to different colleges. And he couldn't wait to see his best friend at Thanksgiving because it's the first time they'd ever been separated. And he got home first. And soon after he got home, he got word that his friend, who'd been driving back from his college, uh, was in a terrible automobile accident and was killed. And he said, I went to my childhood shelf and took out Bridge to Terabithia. And I cannot tell you what a comfort it was to me. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, but if somebody hadn't given him Bridge to Terabithia when he was 10, yes, you know? Yes. He'd had a rehearsal of death. He knew somebody else who'd lost their best friend. Yes. And uh, I, I, I wrote it because, you know, my son's best friend was killed. So I was trying to make sense out of a terrible tragedy uh -huh. for myself, if not for my son. And uh, I think one reason my books are the books they are is because I... I go in with a question for myself that I need to answer. I don't go in with an answer that I need to give to children. And uh, it's a different approach, I think. Yes. Wow, that's so good. You go in with a question and not an answer that you're seeking to give. I love that. You know, we've been talking a lot on the podcast lately about the need, especially for artists of faith, to be able to express that full range of human emotion. Oh, I think, gosh, yes. you know, sometimes we can we can get this idea that religiously motivated art, uh, you know, has to be, uh, has to tie a nice bow at the end of it, or it, it has to be happy, clappy, or things like that. And 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 I love what you're bringing through your work and, and through your words of just the full range of human emotion and how that can be helpful, especially for a younger audience that, uh -huh hasn't faced some things. Oh, well, yes. I, um, <laughs> I, I laugh because Charles Dickens once said, um, make them, and I think he may have said it more elegantly, but <laughs> what I got from it was make them laugh, make them weep, but above all, make them wake. Yes, <laughs> that's good, that's good, that's good. Well, I'd like to ask you a question that brings us into present day and kind of the climate of the literary world in America here and some things that we're facing. <laughs> yeah, dare I go there, right? <laughs> but you know, we're, we're living in a time of literary controversy and, and it seems that censorship is rising. Is... <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, I can feel it. <laughs> I think, well, my... What are you so afraid of? What are you so afraid of that you cannot bear the thought of somebody reading a book they need? You know? Yeah. I mean, okay, if you don't want to read it, nobody is forcing you to read anything. But that doesn't mean you have the right 
to allow to to keep someone else from reading something else. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a quotation on the back of a book I have on censorship uh, from um, Justice Potter, one of the Supreme Court justices, that says a book that means nothing to me might be just the book somebody else needs. And he's it's one of his things he's saying when somebody's trying to censor Mm -hmm. books years ago. And, you know, my books went through challenges and bannings. And I was saying to Nathan, not my turn. I'm not African-American. I'm not LGBTQ. uh, So I think this time I'm going to escape. But that didn't mean I think... Anybody should have to go through this. Yeah. It is absolutely. We live in America, for heaven's sake. We don't live in Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's going on with these people? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I really, you know, I really say, God, is they're so afraid. Then if they're so afraid, have mercy and be kind to them and take away their fear. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> Somehow we've we've got to convince them that their private fear does not uh, give them permission to mm-hmm. to ban books. Mm-hmm. Talk to me some about what it was like for you when you faced some of that with your own books. Well, you know, people say to me, uh, "Aren't you proud that you're on the list?" And I said, "No, because whenever one of my books is challenged or banned, it means that." some teacher or some librarian is in trouble because of something I've written. How can I be happy about that? Mm-hmm. That somebody is willing to put their their reputation and their livelihood on the line for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if any, you know, if I knew about it, uh, I would ask, is there anything you want me to do? And I could always recommend, you know, the, the our National Council of Teachers of English have of it and the American Library Association. You know, there are groups that will come in and, and help you. Uh, and uh, I got a friend through one of an African-American librarian who uh, insisted on having Gregory Hopkins in her library. And uh, uh, they took all, the, her principal took it all the way to the school board. Mm. Uh, and they, you know, they wanted to not only remove the book, but make life hard for her. And so she she got in touch with me. And so I was following it day by day. And and I knew the day the school board was going to make the decision. Uh, I was at a swim meet because all my kids swam competitively in high school and hot. And, and, and uh, of course, there's no cell phone, phone in those days. And I thought... Right now they're deciding. Right now they're deciding in Kansas, and and this dear librarian, that, you know, the correspondence. We got to be friends. I finally met her later, but but I hadn't met her face to face then, and uh, so fi- I couldn't wait to get her to have her say, and she said, "Well, one of the school board members, uh, when they first brought it up last week." that we're going to make the decision this week. And he said, nobody can vote on this unless they've read the entire book. Mm -hmm. 
And the whole school board read the entire book and came back and said, children should have this book. We've got lots of children that need this book. Right. <laughs> so it's people who haven't read the book right. very often yeah. that want to ban it. Mm-hmm. Or they, you know, somebody's gone through and said, you know, here's this line. Oh, isn't this page so-and-so awful? Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot what's happening right now, they're not reading the, mm-hmm. the whole book. It's very interesting what you're saying, yeah. that, that sometimes I think we can be quick to judge something when we really haven't sought to understand. Absolutely, absolutely. One thing I'd love to hear you speak about is how many books have you written? No, today? I knew that question was coming up, but I never know. Uh, some, Forty some. Let's put Forty it some. <laughs> yes. So, having penned over forty books and 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 so many, you know, awards and recognitions for the things that you've done, it's amazing. It's it's really truly wonderful. What stands out to you as you look back as as some of the highlights of of that legacy of that history of writing and and connecting maybe what is one of the more impacting stories that has been told to you from what your writing has has done? I've had a lot of, a yeah. lot of stories. Uh, I got a letter um, a couple of years ago uh, from a young woman who said she was, uh, I think she said she was 16. And she had to write me because when she'd been 10, Bridget uh, Arabithia had changed her life. And she said, you know, I knew all my life that I was different. And, you know, my parents would buy me girly things and all that stuff, and I never wanted it. And. It was very hard for me. And then I read Bridge when I was about 10 years old. And the girl did boy things, and the boy did girl things. And I thought, oh, it's all right to be me and to be different. And she, and she, I mean, she went on and on and on and on. And then she got, got to the end. She said, I'm sure you didn't want to hear all this from a, about a book you wrote 40 years ago from a a queer girl in California, but I had to write you. And I thought, I wrote to her and I said, you know, I won't use her name, but I said, my dear, (laughs) you've done what every writer dreams that a reader will do. You will take a book and make it your own. Mm -hmm. And and I'm just so grateful to you for being that kind of reader, mm-hmm. for needing, taking what you needed from something I wrote and being my co-author. Wow. Uh, and, you know, it's just wonderful when somebody does that. And yes. I particularly love that. Yes, that wow. <laughs> what, what a beautiful thought. You used the phrase co-author. You've, oh, you've yeah. been a co-author. I, I tell children this all the time, you're my co-author, because if... You know, I can write the book, but it's just sitting on the shelf gathering dust unless you pick it down and with your ability to read and your life experience and your imagination, 
you turn it into a story. Yes. I think that's one of the beautiful things about art and writing in general. Absolutely. It's the participation. Absolutely. Yes, yes. That seems to bring you a particular joy talking oh, that, about that. Yeah, yes. the greatest thing about being is writers having readers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, what is inspiring you present day? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, I, I had, I was the most fortunate of writers because my first book, which went over the transom to Thomas Y. Crawl, which no longer exists, was assigned to the, the uh, editor who was just coming off uh, uh, maternity leave, and therefore she didn't have anything on her desk. And he was a writer that nobody had ever heard of, and so she got my first book, and we worked together for uh, 40 years. Mm -hmm. And then she got dementia and was no longer able to edit. So mm. uh, I, I used to say to her, Virginia, you know, if you, when you retire, I'll have to retire because I, I can't write without you. Uh, she was a wonderful editor, and, mm -hmm. and she would never tell me what to do. She'd mm -hmm. only ask me questions. Uh -huh. And uh, I remember in my very first book, you know, I said, I, I never had a real editor before, and I said, well, just tell me what to do, tell me, because he was questioning something in it. And she said, that doesn't work. If I tell you what to do, it's my book. Mm -hmm. This is your book, and you have to answer the question. And that's the way we worked. And, and, but the fir very first letter, I still have the very first letter she wrote me, I thought, I'm, I'm nobody as a writer. And this editor is saying she has faith in me mm -hmm. and that she thinks I might be a good writer Wow! someday. That's amazing. And, you know, it just, you have no idea what that does. Or maybe you do if, you, <laughs> if you've had that experience, the feeling that somebody really respects what you're trying to do. And, you're, and she knew perfectly well I wasn't there yet. Uh-huh. Uh, so. Yeah. Wow, so she had faith faith in you, though. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Well, you know, I, I, we mentioned it earlier, and this kind of ties in with that last question and, and what you were saying, but, you know, you've had this this long career with uh, honored with numerous literary war, awards. I think she was seeing something correctly in you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what advice would you give to new and aspiring writers who are maybe struggling with their confidence? Oh, God. <laughs> well... <laughs> One of, one of my stories, uh, I have a very dear friend named Stephanie Tolan, who is also a writer. And uh, uh, I, I was, I get, we both lived in Norfolk for a while. And I was uh, making a presentation, very informal presentation, and she was in the audience. And uh, this woman said, uh, when did you gain confidence as a writer? Well, <laughs> Stephanie and I both... <laughs> <laughs> burst out laughing, <laughs> and, and and I said I, I had to apologize, and I said the reason Stephanie and I are laughing is because we both know I have no confidence in myself as a writer. She said, well, I think that two Newberries would give somebody some confidence." I said, "No, no, no. All they say is that somebody like those books. I'm never going to write those books again. I have to start." absolutely new every time on a new book and I don't know how to write this book I have to let this 
story, teach me how to write this book. And having succeeded on the, that other book means nothing anymore. Yes. And what I think it was Virginia Hamilton, who was a wonderful African-American writer, said the problem with being a writer is you never learn by experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you have to start. It's rebirth every time. Wow. Every time. Yes, it's kind of the beginner's mind. You have to yeah. go back. And, and I think maybe that's because I think of that so strongly. That's why I've never been able to do serials because I'd be afraid that I wasn't starting new every time. Right, yeah. You know, and I'm sure you're familiar with Madeline Engel's work. Of course. And, you know, one thing that she often talked about was serving the work. Yes. And how the... Oh, absolutely. And she's absolutely right on that. Yes. And... Talk to me about that from your perspective. Well, I, I, the way I just say it a little differently, I just say that the story will teach me how to write it. I listen to the story. Yes. And, uh, and if I listen carefully, uh, you know, people say, well, oh, how do you do dialogue? I thought, I listen to the way they're talking in my head. <laughs> yes. <laughs> do your characters ever do things you don't want them to do? Well... That's a question you get a lot, and I think, well, sometimes different hap- things happen differently from the way I suppose they would happen. But the thing about revising is you're getting to know your characters, and on the first draft, you don't know these people very well. Right. By the time you finish the first draft, you have a much better idea, and you think, oh, they would never have said that. Uh-huh. You know, so it's I've, more like you're learning them I'm as you learning, go along. I'm learning yeah, as I go good. along. You mentioned that you had changed the name from the bridge to Terabithia to bridge to Terabithia, and you discussed how this change was due to there not uh, to there being not just one but numerous metaphorical bridges in the novel that's often showcased through reconciled relationships, and you know bridge building is such an important part of the ministry of the artist. Yes, yes. And we frequently talk about that in the Makers and Mystics community and just about how bridges connect, you know? And talk to me about that bridge building component of writing and then also perhaps what you're hoping to connect children to through your writing. What are the bridges you're building there? In this day and time, when the divisiveness of our country and of our world is such a tragic thing. And we can't even talk to each other if we disagree. You know, come on, folks. We can talk to each other, can't we? And, and uh, it's so important for any of us who have the love of God in our hearts to know that as God has loved us, we can love one another. That's our command. And I think... Oh, that's the bridge, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for spending this time with me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. I just want to honor you uh, for the work, for your contribution to the literary world, to the world of art and faith. And I just really respect uh, you as an artist and a writer and just really honor you for your life and everything that you contribute and continue to contribute. (laughs) Please. (laughs) (laughs) I mean it. It's a real honor to get to talk to you. I might believe it and that would be terrible. (laughs) 
Thank you very much, Stephen. It's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music provided by Somewhere at Sea. If you've been inspired by this podcast, I want to invite you to become a monthly patron and help us continue offering these conversations to the world. Makers and Mystics is an independent, self-funded and patron-funded endeavor. That means your generosity enables us to keep creating. As a patron, you'll receive exclusive interview segments, participation in our online book clubs, and opportunities to connect with other like-minded artists from around the world. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode or visit patreon.com slash makersandmystics to learn more. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.